welcome to the Cinepunked Christmas Special. It's a wonderful podcast. I'm Rachel Kelly and I'm joined by Robert J.E. Simpson. Hiya. And our producer Ben Simpson. Hello. And tonight we're going to be discussing Frank Capra's Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. I've got to ask you already, why the hell are we talking about It's a Wonderful Life? Because it's the greatest Christmas film ever made. Is it a Christmas film? Of course it's a Christmas film. It's set at Christmas time. Uh, it's at the, the very virtue of what we'd established that a Christmas film is. Just by virtue, it's set at Christmas. It is therefore a Christmas film. Well, diehards are set at Christmas in their Christmas films. This is, this is the baseline, yes. It mm. has to be set at Christmas, I think, and it makes it a Christmas film. Mm. I have a very, very wide sort of scope of what I'll take as a Christmas film, though I am very much into Christmas films. Pretty much the whole movie isn't at Christmas time. The only bit that's at Christmas time is the ending. Yes, but that's the bit that makes you cry. That's where the emotional payoff comes from. Um, and also, I mean, the, the, the origin of the film is a, a story that was circulated as a Christmas card. So, I mean, I think that it's not just me, I think, that's, that's going to um, claim that this is a Christmas film. Um, and I think the genesis of it is as a Christmas film. So... Uh, okay, so I take the point that, you know, Philip uh, Van Donen Stern's 1939 story, The Greatest Gift, was indeed a Christmas card. Um, so that, I those... mean, largely because he couldn't find a, uh, a publisher for it, of course, <laughs> but still, it was circulated as a Christmas card. Um, he had Christmas in mind for it. He said it at Christmas Eve. And I mean, the whole magic of the, the film sort of um, circulates around the fact that Christmas has this this magic, regenerative um, property that, that sort of brings out the good in mankind and especially when you have a particularly good human being this is when the world sort of comes to the conclusion that actually you know George Bailey is the best man and, and that's why they want to save him and that's where all of this kind of recuperative um, and, and sort of joyful, happy, feel-good loveliness comes into the film. Loveliness being the the uh, academic term that I choose to use. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I see. I, I I blow hot and cold about this one. Um, I mean, it's one of those things that you, you know, uh, local cinemas now have this back on every year, and it basically they're little art house cinemas in particular, and they let it run for weeks and weeks because everybody wants to go and see it, and it is hailed as this Christmas grit. And I think as as, as you know, but Ben rightly points out. I mean, you know, the Christmas element of it is really quite a small part of the story. It's not it's not really a Christmas film for the most part of it. Well, um, that, yeah, no, that I will grant you. And I suppose a lot of the, the sort of the Christmas tradition surrounding It's a Wonderful Life comes from just the tradition of showing it at Christmas. Um, and in fact, you know, that's why we know this film at all is because it got picked up and shown at Christmas as a Christmas film um, when somebody forgot to renew the copyright. Mm. Um, so, I mean, a lot of it is to do with the nostalgia, I suppose, associated with the people who fell in love with this film as children, seeing it at Christmas time. Um, but I don't think it's, I, do, I really don't find it that much of a stretch to call it a Christmas film. I mean, it's bookended by Christmas. Yes, most of the film takes place at a time other than Christmas, but we're brought in on Christmas Eve, we leave on Christmas Eve, and the, the bookend narrative, which is the part of the... The, the narrative that is actually drawn directly from the original story um, is a Christmas narrative. So, um, I well, I take everybody's point that, you know, you could argue against it being a Christmas film. I don't see why you would. 
So I think the copyright situation with It's a Wonderful Life is kind of interesting. And as you say, it probably is the whole reason that actually it has become a Christmas classic. Oh, it's absolutely the reason why it's it's even known these days. Um, the film just died a death on its release. Mm. Um, it was not wholly responsible for the collapse of Capra's Liberty films, but it was very much a factor in the reason why it collapsed. You were you were talking to me about this a bit earlier on. Mm. Can you do you want to talk a bit about that? Because it's not something I've I've read an awful lot about. Well, you see, I I tend to think of it in in line with it's it's an uncynical film released at a cynical time. Um, I mean, that's part of Frank Capra's whole thing. You know, a, a less cynical director, I don't think you could find working in um, in in any era of Hollywood, and that's part of the whole appeal of Capra's films is is that sort of hope and optimism and faith in mankind and faith in the ability of one good man to do incredible things for the world, for his community, for his family, for his friends. Um, and of course, It's a Wonderful Life is released in the middle of film noir cycles. So it, it comes at a time, you know, that post-war period when Hollywood is starting to, to look at itself again and go... Um, actually, you, we've let all these women do all these fancy things during the war, and we're in a terrible state as a as a nation as a result of it, and and everything's gone all dark and gloomy um, and cynical. And into the middle of all this is released this wonderfully uncynical film about the good that that George Bailey can do, and the fact that there is no Bedford Falls effectively without his unselfishness and and his his kindness and his general goodwill um release that into sort of middle of of, of of film noir and you don't necessarily have an audience and i mean I, as, as far as i remember it didn't do terribly badly but it needed to do better than not terribly badly because no. of the, the the budget so it, it kind of disappeared on its release i don't think it was particularly well received by by critics i don't think it was particularly badly received by critics but it just went a bit lukewarm um and sent liberty films into a tailspin uh from which it never recovered and and capra's career never really recovered there, there were as far as i remember nominations for the film uh you know it, it was the, the, the critics did like it enough to mm. to want to kind of nominate for stuff but then it's sort of it, as you're right you know it, it kind of broke even more than yeah. anything else and then it's it's not really enough in the film business and, and it sort well, of sits away yeah it's not really enough when you've put you know the, as much money I think as, as what had been invested in this mm. film um, it needed to do better than slightly okay so the, the lines that I've been reading suggest that um, in the 1970s, as you, as you indicated, the film had lost, had gone out of copyright, gone mm. public domain because somebody had... Somebody had, forgot had, to somebody, renew the copyright. Somebody had screwed up, basically. Uh, and so what happened was that you got television stations who decided that this is a free film. It's a Frank Capra film, who's a director that people recognise. It's a Jimmy Stewart film. Mm. People love Jimmy Stewart. And it happens to be set partly partly at Christmas mm. uh, and so they would stick it on rotation and uh, <laughs> I read a nice little anecdote earlier on today about somebody who was watching it in Christmas in the 1970s and they ended up playing like a It's a Wonderful Life roulette you see channel hopped and you could not avoid it you kind of <laughs> went from channel to channel and you would catch it at a different part of the film because the film was just on that much For our younger listeners it did not used to be po possible to listen to to watch films on demand this is true. I mean, this is kind of, but even I, I mean, this is a film that you watched this on the Man Ben, yeah? It was on Amazon, you watched yes, it? Yes, I watched it on Amazon Prime this morning. Um, so that's an on demand yeah. system. Yeah. yeah. Um, should, should we but, point out at this point that other on demand uh, people are available? <laughs> they are, but unfortunately it wasn't on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> but how many, uh, how many actual 
channels were there at that period of time? When you're talking about America, so this is another thing, there's a cultural thing. So in, in, in the UK, um, in the 1970s, there was BBC One, BBC Two and the ITV network. And that was it. So we had three channels in the UK. Mm. In the States, they had more and they would have public um, sort of PBS broadcasting as well. So mm. this is like a public network television. Um, but like our colleagues at NVTV. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, if you think that's the kind of th- service that they do for, for the UK. Um, so obviously there there was, um, it is a very different thing. And I think being slightly younger, being in, you know, Europe, and looking at what basically kind of grew up as a cultural phenomenon in the States. Mm. I think it's a very, very strange situation for us to be. So I don't think we maybe appreciate it in the same way. In Britain um, and Ireland, there was a different kind of film culture. I think there was a very different slate of, of films. And obviously you had less option for things to be kind of screened uh, endless cycle. I'm sure um, I must actually have, I haven't looked to see how often it was broadcast in the UK. Um but it would have been up against a lot of other things over here. Mm. Whereas in the States, it was one of those things. It's like um, that version of A Christmas Carol that you always see. Yeah. Um, to be fair, I mean, I don't remember being particularly aware of It's a Wonderful Life um, showing on UK television when I was a child. Um, I think mm. I associate other films with Christmas time in the UK, um, most of them involving Julie Andrews for some reason. Um, <laughs> Why is Julie Andrews the UK Christmas fairy? There is a question for the ages. Well, this is it. I mean, when you when you think about uh, to, to sidetrack briefly because this is our, our our little Christmas special. I mean, when I think about the films that we watched as kids, it was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Sorry, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and Nightmare Before Christmas, always on Christmas Eve. So yes, yeah, so before you go to sleep. <laughs> Keep I and J- Jason one. and the Argonauts on Christmas Day. Of course, you know yeah. the, the the proper Ray Harryhausen one. Oh yeah, yeah. James uh, Bo- James Bond films. Carry on films. Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. Always Mary Poppins. Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Oh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. You know, with a lot of Disney uh, yeah. and a lot of those kind of franchises. Uh, I remember Star Wars being a Christmas film. Um, I, I somewhere I think still have the tape where we recorded off over Christmas in 1986. I remember the label very, very clearly. Well, that used to be what you did, wasn't it? You yeah. know, that was that was how you got your films for the rest of the year. You recorded them on VHS when they came out for the first time over Christmas. Oh, I, I can tell you about it. I mean, it's been something that our generation before you and I probably would have done a lot more of, but I, somewhere in the house I have uh, two 60-minute audio cassettes in which I recorded Star Wars off the television. Aww. I still have them, these kind of neon-looking cassette tapes, and just recorded the soundtrack and listened back to that. Right, okay, I have a point to make. Mm. Mm, Okay. Did you find any of it cheesy? Do you think the whole aspect of me saying that being, like, it being really, really cheesy, is that just because of the way films are made today? Or is that a period thing? I think it's certainly um, very much of its time. But I also think a lot of that is actually just Capra's uh, filmmaking ethos. Um, I don't think, I mean, he, I, he wouldn't have been setting out to make films that were cheesy, but a lot of what kind of underpins the, the ideological outlook that he's trying to put onto his films, uh, quite consciously as well, after a certain point, um, is something that, yeah, I mean, in our more cynical age, we would absolutely call cheesiness mm. um, because he really believes in people. And he believes in 
the capacity for good in people and he believes in the capacity for good in community and he believes in self-sacrifice and he really, 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 really believes in America, um, which is something that, um, I don't know, I find that really interesting about Frank Capra. He's, a, he's an immigrant. Do you know he's an immigrant who spends his, his, his adult life trying to distance himself from his immigrant roots um, and he's so tub-thumpingly pro-America um, how much of that is, you know, that genuine ardor for for the American dream? How much of that is that that project of distancing himself from from his roots? Um, oh, interesting. I want to argue about that. Oh, good. You. Let's I, have an argument I, I, then. I don't, I don't necessarily know that. I completely agree. Uh, in, in terms of what you asked, Ben, um, I, I for me, I think it very much is part of its its era. I mean, this is nineteen forty six, so this is not uh, not today. It is kind of a stylized. For them, it wasn't a stylized kind of filmmaking, but sort of naturalistic acting, for instance, isn't something that really comes along properly until the 50s, and then it comes from Europe, and it feeds uh, through everywhere else. Yeah, the, the method and so on that, that Brando espouses. Yeah, so that, that that's that's a new thing. In terms of its, its, its structure, I mean, America's cinema is also very heavily um, controlled. Mm-hmm. So they have a whole list of rules and things that they have to follow in terms of what they're allowed to present, how relationships are presented. So, for instance, one of the big things that was a problem with It's a Wonderful Life was the way that the bank manager is is, is actually portrayed um, because he's pretended as a bad man. And the whole... Oh, the Potter? Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So one of the whole roles that actually the, the American um, censors had was that if you had somebody who was acting in an act of financial impropriety, they had to be seen to be punished and but I mean, he doesn't get punished. He does not because uh, because uh, he steals. He, he steals. He eight essentially grand. steals eight grand. He does, but he gets punished in a very Capra esque way. Well, because everyone comes to. Because mm. everybody Be- loves George Bailey and yeah. and um, Potter is just ignored, um, and and there's that very pointed "Merry Christmas, Mister Potter" from George Bailey as he skips merrily through Bedford Falls, um, knowing that he has the greatest gift of all, etc., etc., etc. That's Capra's punishment. Capra's going well. Actually, this man has nothing um, uh, in yeah. his in his life that makes up a life as Capra envisions it. No, even the people that he sends, who he thinks are, I suppose, the closest thing to his friends, who he sends round to to duff up Bailey, basically, and get it, you know, yeah, issue they the even chip in, yeah, yeah. But I think, uh, I mean, you talk about it being a very kind of pro-American mentality, but I actually think that that communist, socialist. Um, viewpoint that very definitely comes through. I mean, it's it's actually oh, it's really really surprising. I for completely me. disagree that there's any communist socialist overtones there at there's all. Any socialism? Not not remotely. It's it's kind of the opposite of socialism. There really. I mean, the the whole thing is built up around the idea that um, success is is predicated on uh, individual autonomy and individual hard work. I mean, if if you're going to have any success at all in Capra's world, it's 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 based upon your own efforts and and you don't get handouts. Nothing about that film is is to do with with handouts. It's to do with um, being prepared to work. Now you should the little guy should get help from the community, but only if he's prepared to work for it. That's is that not socialism? No, I mean com- uh, surely the whole. I mean my kind of understanding of socialist societies really are that you know they're not expecting you to not do anything. Everyone is expected to contribute, and everybody within Bailey's little village does contribute and they are rewarded in as much as he makes he allows them he facilitates them to acquire a home and a life for themselves 
providing they're working and they pay their providing bills and they settle working. up. I, I mean, but but what was different? I mean, for me, particularly at the moment, when we're looking in this kind of very Trumpian era. Um, seems every conversation you have about American films right now always ends up referring to Trump, or at least in my head. Um, when you look at, at at Potter, I mean, Potter to me is like a Trump character. Really, he he is oh, somebody taken. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. and and he's quite willing to take on. You know, he'll take on you. You know, whatever you've got, he will give you half of whatever something is worth in order for him to make more profits to control mm-hmm. everything. That to me is much more American than say. Uh, Bailey's attitude. Bailey, Bailey actually is, is doing something that I think you but, you would probably see in Europe, but you wouldn't have seen in America. Oh, I don't know about that. Now, I, I think, again, you have to see this movie as a product of its time because um, this this idea of sort of the tycoon mentality and the, every, you know, um, every man for himself mentality, that's, that's I would very strongly argue that's a post-80s um, conception of um, American business life. Um, I would say that, that, in fact, what George Bailey epitomises is the American dream. And there's nothing communist or socialist about that. It's hard work. It's that bootstraps um, thing that's, that's so reviled these days because it got turned on its head um, and used as a as a way of, of beating um, the, sort of the poor and the downtrodden who have absolutely no way of, of getting out of poverty. But I think um, Capra's definitely not a socialist. Um, Capra's very into... Not into capitalism, but into the opportunities afforded um, by capitalism in, in as much as it sort of um, epitomises or is, is um, helped by the American dream. Curiously, the FBI did think he was a communist, though, and the film was full of communist sympathies. Mm. Yeah, Hugh left him alone. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, Sidetrack completely. I think one of my favourite things in this is is this film sees the origins of Burton Earning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just going to throw that in there as a complete sidetrack. Are you talking about the taxi driver and, and the cop? The, the cop. Yeah. Did you, that pass you by completely? Yeah, that totally. Yeah. And that's. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well. See, you could not get a more American film than It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Burton Ernie start there, and you kind of—I don't see any homosexual overtones to that relationship in that film. Therefore, Burton Ernie are not gay. Oh well, well let's <laughs> let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah, you sure. said something to me earlier about how you find some of it a bit creepy, Ben. Yes. So, uh, how, what is it that you find creepy about it? Just the way George Bailey and Mary get on. You know, like, in one of the scenes, he's on the telephone talking to, was it Sam? Mm-hmm. Is that what you call the guy? Yeah. Um, in New York. And obviously, she's infatuated by him for some reason. Um, because he's James Stewart. Oh, come on. Well, is, is this Ben's first Jimmy Stewart film? Yeah. Oh, I've really? never seen yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to have to do another one of these this year. So. I think so. He's He's on the phone with Sam. Um, well, he's around to Mary's house, and like he doesn't know why he's there, but. You know, he knows why he's there. He knows why he's there, yeah. but he's letting on like, you know, mm. I don't know why I'm here. I just was taking a walk down the street, and Mary's like, "Come on in, please, 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 come, come in. I want to talk to you." And he's like, mm, "Stroppy teenager kind of thing," um, which the vibe I got anyway whenever I watched it. But they're on the phone, and then all of a sudden he's screaming at Mary and shaking her quite violently. I was like what are you doing? And then he starts kissing her in a 
really weird way, you know. So I think what you've picked up on as well, it's not one of those things of, of sort of cinema at that time and the way that relationships are often portrayed. And I think it's something that we're still kind of dealing with a lot. I mean, particularly the older man, younger woman relationship. I mean, he's, he's, he's in reality 38 when he makes this film. She's, I think, 20, 26, 24. Yeah, but he's, he's, only, play, he's playing a teenager for at least playing, part of it. Yes, and he's playing um, certainly young 20s at that point, which is just it's interesting. Okay, I, I wouldn't get away with it. <laughs> Um, no, and I wouldn't get away with it either. But um, you sort of got to, as you've got to sort of willingly suspend your disbelief, I think, for that. I mean, it's no worse than um, Stocker Channing playing Rizzo in Grace, surely. I mean, she was at least twice as old as she was supposed to be in that film. Yeah, I mean, it, it was something that used to happen an awful lot. That You do less and less of it now, but it used to be fairly common for older actors to play much younger parts. Mm. Um, and I think that possibly adds slightly to it. It's. It, it's the performance's edge, but the way that he he does that scene, I mean, part of me loves that because there's this moment where the, there's this relationship that clearly is meant to be right. You know, they, they are quite well, well suited to each other. Yeah, he's it. Well, he's in denial. He's like, I won't get married, and then next next scene, they're is getting married. Yeah, bells, yeah. and then walking down the stairs, and everyone throwing rice, and because he's lying. Well, yeah, he, he doesn't really know what's good for him. Or good for the community. I'm going to keep coming back to this because I think that's really, really key to what Frank Capra is trying to do with the film. Well, he seems to always be struggling. Um, I mean, he he makes a point in that scene of, of sort of talking about what, you know, as long as he gets what he wants. Okay, but he's him. been denied what he wants the whole the way whole through. Film. Yeah. Ah, but what he wants, what he thinks he wants is not what he actually needs because what he actually wants deep down is for his whole life to have meaning um, and, and he doesn't realise what meaning his life has had. Um, oh, he, he, I think you also see it in that sequence with the bank run. Um, mm. You know, he, he's off, he's, he's got, a couple of scenes later, you know, he's got married, they're off in the wedding car, mm -hmm. about to go to their honeymoon. Yeah, and he sees the, and, and the, the run, trouble at the mine. So the run happens and then he ends up, rather than thinking about himself, and she says, you know, just, just, just ignore it, kind of walk on, he goes into the bank and not only is he trying to help his business continue, he's also trying to look, help the community that he's part of, make sure that they're yeah. not getting shafted. Yeah. Which Potter is quite happy to do. Potter yeah. was shaft every one of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I don't know whether I necessarily think of it as, as him trying to keep his business afloat because, I mean, the buildings and loan is not really necessarily a business in the sense of it's it's literally only just about keeping the family employed and no more. That's the socialist mentality again, I think, manifest. It's, it's, it's not, he is not commercially driven in the same way, but what he no. is, he's doing enough to tick yourself over. That's surely a socialism. It's not a, it's not a, the commercial abundance. Um, He's doing better than a lot of the other people in Bedford Falls. He's certainly middle class. Um, and I don't think that the film makes any suggestion that, um, wealth should be equally redistributed. I think what it's trying to suggest is that if the little guy is prepared to work hard and try and better his station, um, he should get help from the people who are in a position to, which is incidentally what Frank Capra mm. did himself um, as a, a young poverty stricken man working his way up um, and prepared to put in the time and the hours and the effort um, mm. to first in his family to graduate high school. Do you know, so... Um, 
Yeah, no, I'm going to completely disagree with you that there's communist overtones here at all. I, I, I would say socialism opposite. more than communism. Okay, I'm going to disagree with you on socialism as well. I, I, I hope the people listen to this actually. <laughs> Can I get involved in the conversation? Because I really, I, I don't know. I, I still think there's definitely a socialist angle to it. And I felt it all when I was watching it again last night. Um that it that it's very definitely strong and it seems to be uh, th- there's definitely a contrast between him and Potter and their whole attitude towards money and mm-hmm. wealth and power. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I think that is indicative of Capra's very strong distrust um, of of money and wealth and power, and I think that's something that he's never really able to kind of work through for himself, um, and he has increasing issues with trying to reconcile to himself his own wealth and relative power um, knowing and and suspecting that it can corrupt but not not corrupt in that in the in the sense of you know all power corrupts etc etc more in the sense that if you don't have to work for for things what is your contribution to society if money is doing all the work for you if if that is the only work that you need to do is to sit back and let your money multiply what are you contributing to society um how are you making the world better for being there um and you know you see that all the way through his filmic output gosh what was the name of the the talkie he made for Colombia i can't remember it's about 1927 1928 um and it's literally these sort of two newlyweds um, marry for love. Um, he is the, the son of a wealthy tycoon. She is a poor Irish immigrant. Um, father disowns them um, because they, he marries someone that he considers beneath, beneath their station. Um, and he gets his own back on his dad, who's this skin, skimpy, stingy businessman, by creating a business that takes him on at his own game. Um Dad's motto, Dad's business's motto is slice the ham thin. So they decide that they're going to make working men's lunches and they're going to make decent working men's lunches and have proper actual portions in them um, and sell them for the same kind of money because, you know, the decent working man deserves to not be screwed over at every opportunity. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's that's Capresque ethos. It's not that you get handouts. It's not that the world owes you a living. It's not even that wealth ought to be redistributed equally. It's that you shouldn't be screwing over the little guy mm. and you should actively be be encouraging and helping him to take his part in this sort of active, um, helpful community mm. of, of, of men and women, all of whom have their place and their part to play. I'll take your point. A film called That Certain Thing for the summer originally it was pitched as a, as a Cary Grant film I, I love that idea that, that this could have been a Cary Grant thing would be a very different wasn't feel it, wasn't it still wasn't that when it was still with RKO though uh, it was yeah so very early on originally yeah. it was pitched as a, a sort of vehicle for, for Cary and I, Cary Grant wouldn't have worked with Cat for again though would he <laughs> <laughs> he didn't read him at all possibly not but maybe that's yeah. it's part and parcel but I always like this idea that there's, the, there's these alternative films and it's like would if it wasn't Jimmy Stewart who's kind of like America's favourite kind of nice guy mm. would you maybe not bend it because Cary Grant's a little bit more um... suave and, and he's, he's got that kind of sophistication and that, that sort of uh-huh, how you doing how you doing <laughs> oh, I've never heard the Britishman Cary Grant ever described as a, as a joke <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't see Cary Grant going, how are you doing? I can't see him saying, how are you doing? But I can see him, he's got that kind of air to him, is what I'm arguing. I mean, he's a ladies' man. A bit, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He, 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 and his stuff is, is always very watchable as well. Yeah, but, yeah um, absolutely. Wouldn't we have very different... I don't, I don't think this would be in any way the same kind of um, success, because I think it takes that kind of warmth... Of, well, let's remember, it wasn't in any way any no. kind of success but it, at the but time. It is, but it is. It that's is the, now. That's the thing. It, yeah, is, it is now. It, is and it, has, now. it has got that reputation mm. now where it is this great film, and I think Jimmy Stewart is a mm. huge part of that. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Um, I, I think, so I mean, when you take it at its origins, I mean, this is, this is basically a sort of skewed reworking of A Christmas Carol. Oh, okay. But only with a weird twist. Uh-huh. It doesn't happen to the Scrooge in the story, which is Potter, in my opinion. It happens to to George instead. Yeah, uh, Potter is is definitely Scrooge. Uh, he is uh, George is is sort of the Bob Cratchit figure. Yeah. In this. And, and so what you get is it's almost like we just shift the viewpoint. Yeah. Well, we're not about re- redeeming Potter here. I mean, Potter is is not redeemed, and he's he's sort of beyond redemption. I think as far as as Capra or the film is concerned. Yeah, so it, it, it is this kind of skewed rendition. So it is like we've switched our viewpoint from from looking. I mean, A Christmas Carol is always about Scrooge and about this, as mm-hmm. you say, this redemption. Um, and what we do is we take this man who it says from the outside actually has everything. He doesn't realize how much he actually has, and everybody loves him. You know, you can't be better. You've got all these friends, and we're taking like Bob Cratchit and actually, you know, Bob. And you kind of think like there must be points in, in Christmas Carol if you take that narrative slightly out, where Bob is sitting there going. My life is shit. <laughs> yeah. I can't stand this. Why the hell am I doing this? My son is a cripple. He's gonna die if I don't do anything. And my boss is a bastard. And and you know, though well, he is the boss, he doesn't have a boss. Um, in this, yeah, but you kind of, you, I think it's definitely taken its inspiration from Christmas Carol. And in fact, Stern in his short stories uh, was was a Christmas Carol written before Christmas Carol was written way before Christmas Carol is like a Victorian novel. Right, okay. uh, so this is the original story, short story was written in 1939. Uh, it was published in 1939, and mm. he had apparently had a dream that was inspired by a Christmas Carol, and okay. that's what he wrote his little Christmas Carol. Well, so it, it definitely is acknowledged as being part of the yeah. origin for it. Okay. But okay. I do think as well, you've got elements like you know, you've got the ghost of mm-hmm. uh, the well, ghost of Christmas. Got an angel. Past, present, and future. I think I think he's the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Really, in many respects. Yeah. Um, well, if, I mean, I I absolutely see where I take your point completely, um, and I think that's a really really interesting way, and it's not something I'd ever considered before. But I think in that case, it's very much critical of a Christmas Carol. Um, uh, certainly, in as much as it translates, no, and I think in the original short story as well, um, because it is very critical of the idea that um, money is the source of richness or wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, I mean, A Christmas Carol is all about wealth and, and uh, not hoarding wealth. And this is the this is the idea that uh, wealth is share not... Share the wealth? Yeah, no, not even share the wealth because um, the, the whole idea behind um, the, the sort of the, the, the denouement of um, It's a Wonderful Life is that wealth is not found in money. Um, the the richest man in Bedford Falls is miserable. Yes, but the the the, the he, yeah Potter is miserable. But um, the the richest guy in Bedford Falls is George Bailey, uh, who is flat, stinking, stony broke. His house is falling apart. But yeah. but thankfully he has all his friends who can lend him all the money he needs in order to make back the debt that he owes that he doesn't really owe. Yeah, 
Exactly. I mean, there's a complicated relationship there between the the kind of the social aspect and and, and the kind of the the financial aspect. And we're probably best not getting too much further into that one because I know we're not going to agree. Not going to agree, no. (laughs) But I do think taking that that kind of Christmas Carol origin, it it, it does give you a very, very different kind of story. And also, it's probably the one thing that allows me to say that, yes, this is a Christmas film. There Uh, you go. I'm going to agree with Rachel at the end of the discussion rather than the start. But I mean, well, it would be wrong of me to say I told you so, so I won't. <laughs> okay, right. Here's a here's a far out thought. Was the angel real, or was it all in his head? Ooh. Ah, that's well, interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of crucial to a Christmas Carol in many respects as well, because as as, as Scrooge himself acknowledges, how is it possible to do all that thing in one night mm. to see such sights? And I think in many respects, it's exactly the same here, is it not? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point and I think it, it, it makes it really very much darker if the angel is not real. Because um, he was stoicious <laughs> whenever he sees the angel. <laughs> I, I, I think Capra is just not cynical enough for it to, to be a figment of George's drunken imagination. I think Capra, and I think particularly the opening section of it as well, where they flag up, you know, <laughs> Joseph, there's a terrible problem down on earth, which, yeah, is hokey, cheesy. Um, it's not it's not necessarily very aesthetically pleasing, but it's lovely. Uh, it, it, it's, it's cringy it's, is what it is. It's, oh, it's, it's so not. terrible. I mean, it, it, it's so, un, I mean, it, what it does do is it betrays very much how, non, uh, how non-secular Hollywood could be at that yeah. time, which you don't get so much anymore, which in some respects is quite refreshing that you're still allowed to have thoughts and viewpoints and faith of your own and that's mm. actually acceptable and that's fine and America has always been much better at doing that than I think the UK has mm. in, in many respects certainly in cinema um, but that opening is terrible I mean it's it is for a filmmaker to spend <laughs> what must be five minutes looking at the star field with two little lights little pulsing lights. Well, and well, then one little galaxies, light arrives yeah. galaxies and then a, a, yeah. a little it's, star it's terrible along. I'm just like let's get into the story and also it doesn't really come back to it again at any point it's putting its colours to the mask though right from the very beginning oh, totally, it's saying, yeah. this is an uncynical film this is uncynically looking at religion and, well, you've, you've and got... underpinning the loveliness of the world um, and on, on sort of supernatural what? kind of Christmassy things it's very definitely Christianish. I think you know you've mm. got these two parental Galaxies, one of which happens to be called Joseph. Joseph, yeah, I don't think that's uh, and, and this little, little baby Clarence kind yeah. of comes along. I mean, like it's it, it's uh, it's hard. Um, yeah, oh, I don't know. I hate that opening. But in terms of is he real? I think you're meant to think that yes, he is because right at the end. And, and I'm sorry if you haven't worked out already, folks. We do do spoilers in this show. Um, <laughs> after he's been told, you know, the greatest, you know, riches is the man who has all these friends. What do you see sitting down and amongst the presents there, and amongst all the cash, mm-hmm. there is that copy of Tom Sawyer. Yeah. So which was Clarence's copy of Tom Sawyer? You know. Yeah. So it's there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's very clear that that. It wasn't all a dream. Yeah, it's not. So, if it wasn't a dream, wasn't an alternate universe that he got taken to? Um, yes. I, I just went oh, yeah. totally far. So, so you're now suggesting. So you, you like this because Ben is now suggesting that this is science fiction. Ooh, okay. It's a wonderful life as science fiction. I could go there. This is this is going to be your third novel, no? It's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you only get ten percent yeah. of that. Um. Yeah, well, it's it's an alternate timeline, isn't it? Mm. That's that's exactly what it is. It's an alternate timeline in which George Bailey never existed, um, and that's the only way of showing just the contribution that he has to the uh, OU. 
the original universe. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, that's fair enough. And I think that's what you get anytime you have uh, that kind of alternate reality. I mean, this, mm. this is that other world, yeah. Did the Nazis win the war, though, without Harry Bailey? There's the question. Ooh. How how dark did this timeline go? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, That's I mean, point. The, the, the guys in the, the aircraft carrier all died yeah. because but he wasn't there to save them. Absolutely. But I, I think we still won the war. Yeah, I, I don't think he was yeah, that it wasn't, important. It wasn't sort of Potterstad or anything, I suppose. They're not speaking German. Um, and, and, you know, they're Americans. The Americans didn't win the war. <laughs> but think of all the things think of all the things that George did whenever he was there during that time like you know air raid guard and and doing all those drives you know the scrap drives and the rubber drives and all that mm. you know wow you're, you're really into it <laughs> would all, all of that stuff happened um, still if George wasn't there no because I don't think anybody else could really drum up the community in the same way that George does I think yeah. that's the emphasis is that yeah. actually pillar of the community people, people, people yeah. love that guy yeah. Because well, they can trust him. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, Mary, then, she didn't go and help the troops on the trains feeding them mm. food and all that. Well, you know? I suppose she could have done, potentially, but I think she was a bit, yeah, she was a bit sort of timid. And, she I became mean, a librarian. Yeah, yeah, she became a recluse. Yeah, uh, kind of, yeah. Uh, an old maid librarian. I yeah, mean, I've yeah. been a librarian. We're not all like that. No, and she's considerably younger than I am now to look that <laughs> old. <laughs> um... I think uh, one of the other things I want to touch on briefly before we kind of wrap this up um, is actually, I think it's also a bit of a study of someone's battle with depression mm. uh, and mental health. Mm. And I mean, this comes in a lot of films, but I hadn't, re-watching it yesterday, it really struck me that actually this is a guy who, he has an awful lot going for him and he's, he's in a, realistically, he's actually in a pretty good place, but he looks at all the little disappointments and they just start adding up and it yeah. adds further and further into the cycle where he ends up having a nervous breakdown and yeah. goes on a bender and then sees things. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm always struck when somebody watches it for the first time. I mean, I didn't watch this until quite early adulthood, but I was familiar with it from um, reading Red Dwarf, where it's being held up as this absolute bastion of feel-good Christmas films for, for Dave Lister. Um, it's fairly typical of me to come to It's a Wonderful Life via science fiction. Um so, I mean, I, I knew of it as this this wonderful, lovely, feel-good film. And I'm always struck when somebody sees it for the first time, they generally comment straight away how dark it is for a Christmas film. Mm, and it yeah. is really dark. I mean, it starts, it opens with a man contemplating suicide, a father of four contemplating suicide on Christmas Eve. That is dark. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously it all works out okay in the end, but... Um, it it really does. I mean, it it's it goes to some really dark, dark places. And because we know it's a it's a product of its time, and because you know the Hayes Code is in effect, and so on. And I, I'm imagining I don't know the Hayes Code the letter, but I'm imagining that it probably doesn't allow for depictions of suicide on Christmas Eve. <laughs> but <laughs> um, we, we're pretty sure that you know it's going to be all right because it's nailed its colours to the mast, etc, etc, etc. It sort of started with, you know, oh, Joseph, we must get an angel down here to save this man. But yeah, I mean, for somebody who has potentially been to that dark place, I could see that they would recognise some really bad times there. Mm, I, I mean, I think in many respects, possibly that is one of the... the the perfect things about that film in terms of this time of year because this is the time of year where we now have had enough studies 
to show that actually people do get really down and really depressed mm. and people forget they do lose sight of stuff and amongst particularly the financial burdens that people have also the, some of the social pressures that have mm. I'm actually going to sort of say that this film is very much ahead of its time in terms of, of, of what it's doing and in terms of our place within um, society at this time of year yeah yeah I would agree um, I mean just for it to be sort of uh, a you know, this this Christmas classic, um, the fact that it actually deals with some of the big problems of Christmas. Um, yeah, kind of revolutionary for a 1946 film. Any last thoughts on, on It's a Wonderful Life before we wrap this up for today? Greatest Christmas film ever made. <laughs> I will fight people who argue with me. I'm going to be so sore later. <laughs> ben? I, I thought it was good. Like, it is a funny, there, there are some funny bits in it. Um, some really awkward bits in it too, but it, it's not a bad movie. Wow, damning with faint praise there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I sit in a very strange place with this one. I don't think it's the greatest Christmas film by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, well, Die Hard too. Fair enough. I'll give you. <laughs> is our podcast next year is the, we'll, yeah. we'll try and find the best Christmas film ever um, but I think actually it's got an awful lot going for it and I think it, it, it throws you um, I think what's sad in many respects though is that it tends to only get watched this time of year because so little of the film is at Christmas and people will happily watch Die Hard 2 in what March yeah well any day is good for Die Hard 2 yeah so um that's us for, for this podcast, I think. Um, so thank you very much for listening and you will be able to find out more of the show, uh, find out more about our live events and other exciting projects that we've got coming up. Uh, if you check us out on Facebook, look for CinePunked and also we have a website, www.cinepunked.com and we will start adding stuff to that as well. Uh, for now, um, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Robert J. Simpson and I have been joined by... Rachel Kelly. And our producer... Ben Simpson. Catch you soon. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right.